Wisdom of the Warrior podcast, where we discuss the warrior spirit in a modern-day world. I am pleased to have crew Chase Baldwin, founder of the Grindstone Muay Thai System, entrepreneur, and uh, soon-to-be pro fighter, I hear. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, glad to have you on the show, man. So what do you think of man? I'm excited to uh, decide to get down and talk to shop. Yeah. So uh, tell everyone out there a little bit about yourself and uh, what you've been doing these days. <clears throat> well, my name is uh, Chase Walden. Um, I am an 11-year Muay Thai veteran. Um, I've been doing a lot of teaching, a lot of fighting over the years. Um, currently making a roundabout back to fighting, uh, more of the fighting end. Um, and making the jump up to pro. I'm living in uh, Sterling, Virginia right now, training with Disciple MMA and crew Scott Howard, um, and uh, really back at the old school grind. Um, like it was my very first fight, trying to get things moving, because uh, in essence, it is my very first fight. Once you go pro, nothing else matters. It's, it's a brand new start, you know? So out there doing that fight grind, and... Uh, doing what I can to uh, leave a little bit of legacy behind. I hear you. So you, this will be your first pro fight for everyone who's not aware with you. You've been fighting for 11 years, but this will be your first step into the pro ranks, correct? Uh, this fight will not be. This is hopefully going to be my last amateur fight. We'll fight for one more national title at 160 pounds with the uh, World Kickboxing Association. And uh, as one last Latino fight, step into the pro uh, ring, we're going to get this one last title fight out of the way. And then uh, jump right into the pros after that. Yo. Um, so for everyone who doesn't know, like Chase and I go back a really long way. Chase walked into my school, um, young teenage kid, pony. Many, many moons ago. Many moons ago. Uh, training out of what, a Taekwondo school? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was, uh, I think I was 17 years old. Um, and I was doing the uh, Taekwondo sport, Olympic uh, thing, if you will, just trying to have any kind of competition martial arts that I could, and uh, I decided that it wasn't enough. So I found uh, I found Muay Thai by accident. I saw some live fights one night, and I was like, holy shit, that's it. That's the one. So then I walked into school the next day, or the next Monday, and uh, I was like, yo, Muay Thai stuff looks cool. I want to fight. Let's do it. And yeah. uh, that was uh, 11 years ago, and now here I am on the phone. Okay. And you, did you just with Brandon Vera for a little bit? Yeah. Um, Brandon Vera was actually teaching at the – he was teaching a Muay Thai program at the Taekwondo school that I was teaching at myself. So I had a little bit of a idea of what Muay Thai was, but I had never really trained in it before. Um, and then uh, – Almost as an intimidation factor, the coaches would bring Brandon into the Taekwondo class because he's got a background in that himself as well. Uh, so really please, to scare us a little bit, if you will. Um, so you definitely get in there and you bark at us and yell at us. And a man of Brandon Barrett's size, uh, mixed with teenagers, damn near, you know, almost want to shoot your pants. Um, so they used him as a big uh, fear factor in the school um, when we were getting ready for tournaments and whatnot. So that was pretty cool. Um but because I knew where he was training with I at, uh, that's where I knew to go to uh, when I decided it was time to uh, take that jump over, you know? 
Yeah, uh, Brandon, if you guys don't know who Brandon is, he fought in the UFC. He uh, fought light, light heavyweight and heavyweight. Um, he, I was his first Muay Thai coach. And he possibly is the biggest Filipino on the planet. Yeah, that's a very fair statement. I actually believe he just signed a contract. I'm thinking it was with Bellator, but I saw um, a video that he posted up of him talking to uh, another fighter saying he signed in the heavyweight division. So I think he's coming back for another professional fight. So I'm really, really excited to see that after all these years. Yeah, it'll be good to, to see a local boy back back in action. Yeah. yeah. So why why do the switch over from Taekwondo to Muay Thai? Now, I remember a specific conversation that you had with me when you walked into the door that had uh, – some, some connotations about Taekwondo maybe you want to clear up with us? Um, nah, yeah, man. <laughs> um, I, don't ever want, I don't ever want to shit on anybody or anybody's style or anything like that. But um, at the time, um, I, was, I, was, you know, I was not just looking for competition, but like a real test without getting into a street fight, you know? Um, I had a lot of boys that always be like, oh, man, yo, that shit's cool, but I, that don't work in, out in the street. And that doesn't. I ain't going to work anywhere else but where you do it at. And I was like, I don't know, man. If I kick you in the face, you know, on the street, I think you'll drop. But uh, there's no way to really test it except for getting into a street fight, and that just didn't seem logical to me. Um, so, you know, when you're just kicking around or you're just hitting for one point and then stopping, like a lot of the Taekwondo rules um, regulate you to do, it, it, it doesn't, you don't get the essence of a real fight. There's never really the essence of uh True danger to me. I mean, definitely guys do get knocked out in the higher end Olympic uh, circuits and the higher NASCAR NBL tournaments. Guys do get knocked out and guys do go to sleep. And people do fight for a very high dollar amount. And that's respectful, but at, at the end of the day, to me, it's still not one of those. Uh, you never really put in fight or flight. You never really put sink or swim um, like you are in the more tiring. Um, so I remember I, I was looking for that next step. But really, it was the closest thing to a fight that I can get where, you know, Standard or anything was legal, and that almost seemed to be Muay Thai because I didn't like any grappling of MMA and things like that. So I was like, wow, they're kicking people in the legs, they're kicking people in the face, they're using elbows, they're doing everything. They're doing every damn thing you can do as far as standing and striking goes. So uh, I, yeah, when I came in, I was like, Taekwondo just wasn't enough, and I was looking for a real fight, and uh, I was pretty damn confident, I like to say, that I could do it. <laughs> um, so, you know, that was the big reason to make that switch over from one style to the next. You know, just wasn't enough of a threatening situation. The journal never got put so high for me. Um, and, you know, there's definitely a significant difference when you're walking in to a Taekwondo tournament where there's <clears throat> 10 different mats going on, and kids fighting and parents screaming and people doing forms. And then you go into a Muay Thai arena and you're walking down a platform where there's one ring and everyone's eyes are on you, and there's, you know, you're the sole center of attention about what's about to happen. It's a different kind of pressure. It's a different kind of atmosphere. Um, you know, a different kind of stress that you have to uh, rise above as opposed to just being part of a, a friendly community uh, activity, if you will. Right. And you fought how many fights as an amateur? In Muay Thai? Yes. Um... I hate to forget my own record, but it's been over the past 11 years. Um, but it's around 20 fights now. I think going into this next fight, September 26, this is my 21st fight, I believe. And that's a good place to be for any amateur fighter about to go pro. Is when you get to the pro. I don't quite remember how many fights I know I fought a lot. 
that's usually a really good place to be, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I like to say on the amateur level that, one, you know, numbers of fights don't really matter once you get to around 10. Um, usually when you're breaking into that double digits numbers for as an amateur fighter, you're at that cusp of you've seen everything you're going to see before, you know, guys fighting tournaments and fight four or five fights in a day and get that much experience in one day. You know, what does it really matter if another guy has five, six, seven more fights than they do because they can get that experience in a day sometimes. Um, so I think uh, mentally as a fighter, it's a really good place to be because you've seen enough um, to really take a step up. You've been within the 10-fight range. You should have been put in enough danger within those 10 fights to really make the decision if this is something you want to do and move forward with. If you haven't been put in that position with those 10 fights, then you need to go a little bit farther and get a little more tight before you step in the professional Muay Thai arena. Um, okay, it's just a completely different sport, um, a completely different animal when you're fighting on a professional level. Um, and to be quite honest, you know, I mean, there are there are guys out there that have done more with their amateur careers than some professionals have done with their professional career. Um, you know, I know guys that have upwards of 30, 40, 50 fights as an amateur, whereas some professionals only end up with 10 professional fights their entire career. So who really has more experience in fighting at that point in time, you know? Um, but, you know, it doesn't take away from saying that that 10-fight range is a good spot to be. Um, uh, you know, I'm currently at 20 because a lot of guys will fight 10 fights, you know, in two, three tournaments. They'll fight 10 fights in two, three years. Um, in my situation, I happen to get, you know, 20 fights in 10 years. A lot of my, I think all my past five fights have been all a year apart, um, which causes for a lot of ring rust and a lot of uh, new training partners, new training camps, things like that. It kind of sets you back a little bit. But um, at the point now with 20 fights, just fighting amateurs, it isn't really worth not getting paid anymore. You know what I mean? So it gets to that point where you either get sick of not getting paid or you get sick of fighting and you fall off to one of the two. Okay. And so you don't really think that there's like a magical number for for people to go from amateur to pro, do you? Nah, man, not at all. If you're tough, you're fucking tough, bottom line. <laughs> if you're beating people up, you're beating people up. You don't have to have a certain amount of experience to do it. Um, look at who's that gigantic African dude from the Congo fighting Glory right now. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, he's literally from the Congo. That's what it says in his high profile. Um, I hate to not know his name because it makes you sound stupid, but he's been knocking out professional heavyweight Glory fighters left and right. Um and his backstory is that he's just a gigantic guy who was born and raised in the Congo and has a little bit of boxing background. He saw Glory on TV one day and was like, hey, I can do that, and I'm going to. But he doesn't kick or anything. He just goes in there, and he's just gigantic enough mm-hmm. that if he connects with you, you're really going down, and he's improving it. Um, he had no professional kickboxing experience or no kickboxing experience at all whatsoever until he stepped into the Glory World Series. That's the biggest stage for kickboxing in the world right now. And he's knocking out the top professional athletes that we have that are in the table. So did he have to have a magical number? No. He should be raised in the fucking Congo where it's really hard to live and you got to be tough to survive. So what the hell is a fist fight to him? He's been fighting lions and bullets and getting stabbed. His profile has said he's been stabbed two times, fought in three wars and all kinds of crazy shit, and he's just a tough son of a bitch. Where are his numbers? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you know. Look at Joseph Valtellini. What didn't he go to like being ranked number seven in the world, or number four in the world, in under ten professional fights? I mean, 
brings up a good point about, you know, the whole the whole idea of the podcast is, is really distinguishing what a warrior is. Like the difference between like a fighter and a warrior, you have people who train for a sport and a specific skill set or act, which we call fighting, but you have people who are warriors that just embody that on a day-to-day basis. Like the glory fighter you're talking about, you know, he only had a few ring fights, but he actually had to defend himself, his country, his people on a day-to-day basis outside of any type of rule set, almost any staff shot and things like that. And do you think that that, that has some type of carryover for it, right? I mean, it's got to have some type of carryover clearly because of his um, um, success in the sport. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and let me start, before I say anything else, I want to put out there, I have never been stabbed. And I have never been shot. So these are just my opinions as an outsider. I don't want to piss off any of my military buddies or anybody who has that. That's got to be an excruciating experience. I'm very sorry you've all gone through that. But here's my opinion on the following. Um, I would imagine that if I had spent my time um, in a war zone of any kind and people were shooting bullets at me um, because they wanted to kill me, getting in a fist fight isn't going to phase me as much. Now, that being said, I have seen and have very, very, very personal friends that kind of took that mindset. Um, people who are very experienced war veterans who have been in highly stressful situations uh, where it has been fight or flight, where it has been sink or swim, um, and where it has been kill or be killed. Um, so the stress of getting hit in the face or getting beat up by somebody isn't a stress factor for them. They're not really afraid of that. But on that same category, they don't have, or that person didn't quite have the athletic ability to be a fighter, so to end up getting beat up. But he right. ended up just be punching bag for a matter of rounds. However, he wasn't afraid of being that punching bag. So he's definitely very, very strong mentally. Um, but just because you're very strong mentally doesn't mean you know, it's only that, that half of the fight you do have to have a, a physical presence um, to be a, a successful or victorious fighter. Um, but, you know, that, that's what makes people tough and, and makes them fighters or not. You know, there's definitely athletes and then there's fighters. Or I would like to say there's fighters and then there's athletes that fight. You know what I mean? Um, there's a big difference in the two. Um, fighters are, I mean, I hate to say it and give them too much credit, but the Diaz boys in MMA, uh, those motherfuckers are scrappers. They're fighters, bottom line. Uh, you put them out in the street, you put them in the ring, you put them in the cage. They want to fucking fight somebody and they want to hurt them. Um, and they happen to be highly tuned athletes because they chose fighting as a profession. But then there's other fighters out there that aren't like that. They are only going to fight in one uh, facet and they're not going to be able to fight in a, a a sink or swim situation outside of a controlled combat area. You know what I mean? Um, there are guys that go out there that fight to win, and then there are athletes that fight not to lose, if that makes any sense. Um, and it's not something that can be taught. You know, that's kind of the way some people are made. Like the Diaz boys, they're, I mean, they got some issues. They work it out with fighting, and that's what they've always done. That's how. That's what they know how to do. That's what makes them fighters. That's what makes them scrappy. You can't teach somebody to be scrappy. That shit just comes to you. You can't teach somebody what it's like 
to have a knife held to your throat. You got to have a knife held to your throat and know what that shit's like, you know? Um, so people that come from tougher backgrounds or, or, or third world countries um, have that natural combative edge, which is why some of the, you know, the Eastern Bloc guys, anybody from the Ukraine, um, I've never once in my entire life and all my years of fighting, see a Ukrainian person who was not tougher than nails. You know, those guys are like iron. That's not an easy country to live in or easy side of the world to be brought up on. Um, but I've seen a shit ton of guys from America that are kind of soft. Never seen a soft Ukrainian, though. Um, yeah. And that's not, and then once again, that, that's your part of your environment at that point in time. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's with the beauty of the sport. And, and it's also like anything else, you know. If you have the right person looking at you and you want to be in the NFL and you're good enough, you can get to the NFL. But if you're just some dude in the ghetto who can't get out of the ghetto, you're an athlete from the ghetto, you know? But if you're a soft-ass kid who with a silver spoon in his mouth but is athletic and can fight and gets to the right spot because he has the money, he can then turn into a fighter. Um, so, you know, it becomes a, a product of, you know, where you're from and, and what you do with yourself, I guess. Yeah, and, and that brings me to a, a really good question. Like, when you look at any of the Eastern Europeans, they're they're very can be very stoic. They um, they don't tend to complain a whole lot from a little bit of a harder background, so they become very tough fighters. Whereas in the United States, the majority of the people who do things like Muay Thai, they have a little bit of money in order to be able to afford it. So my question to you would be. How does an American athlete, an American fighter, compare to and keep up with European fighters? How do we how do we become competitive against them if they are growing up in these these very stoic situations? And the first thing that comes to my mind is you think about like the Rocky movie, right? Rocky Four. He's fighting the Russian. The Russian is living in cold, bare lands, and Rocky literally has to rip himself out of Hollywood to go stay in a shed. One of the most badass things I've ever seen. Um, I mean, it was pretty, that's, it was pretty badass. I'm not gonna lie. After all these years, I still watch Rocky IV for all my fights. It gets me hyped every time. Oh um, yeah. Montage <laughs> ever is what is it? Hearts on fire. Oh my god! Are you kidding me, man? I can't. I, can't, I get chills every time. Every time I listen to it, no matter what, it, it doesn't matter. I, I immediately want to hit a, a speed bag in a barn, you know. <laughs> um. But it's a really good question, and, and actually have a lot of personal experience um, as somebody who has made martial arts and fighting their entire life. Um, I went through a specific period in my life where I wanted to be um, as high as possible, um, because to me that was the only way to be better. Um, now, I'm not saying that's the only way to be better now, but at a point in my career, um, and my, my mindset was that if you want to be good at Muay Thai, you need to be, you need to submerge yourself in the Thai culture. Um, so I sought out to go to Thailand, and I went out there for my first trip in 2011. And uh, I spent two weeks out there, and I was lucky enough um, to have a lot of connections there. Um, you know, I was training with uh, Master Sadi at the time, and just through being involved with his name, we had a lot of privilege over there just because of we were his students. And that was 
really, really, really fortunate. Um, you know, if it wasn't for some of those experiences I had and only would have had because uh, the connections he had through Toddy, um, as a regular, you know, just some white guy up there, we wouldn't have been able to do some of the things that we did. Um, and that really put a lot of things in perspective for me um, back then. So uh, while we were there, we got to go to um, a, a fight school, uh, Matt's Youth of Women's Place. Um, I can't remember where it was, Run outside of Bangkok. But uh, we went there on a Sunday, and I was at rest day, and he had three fighters that uh, he said, you know, made train with us. And it was actually their day off. They were injured for fights, but they were all Class A fighters. Um, and one of them was... 13, one of them was 17, one of them was 20. I was 23 at the time. And my buddy Shane, who was with me, um, was 24, 23 at the time, I forget. Um, so these kids, you know, you know, a good number of years younger than us. Um, and they trained with us, and they like said they're all class A fighters in Thailand. Um, professionals who, you know, were owned by the school and, and lived there and trained there, you know, six days a week. Um, and they trained with us, and they and they, they, they ragdolled us, man. We I mean, there's, there's actually a video on YouTube right now. Um, you can pull it up. Um, I can send you the link. Um, uh, me and my buddy Shane, um, about 20, 30 minutes clinching with these kids. Uh, and uh, for those of you who don't know me out there, um, I'm six foot three, um, 175 pounds. I'm a pretty slender guy, pretty tall, and I'm getting thrown around by a kid who's, you know, five foot nothing and, and 40 pounds less. Than, um, and just, you know, ragdolled us and really – putting us through the ropes and, and making us prove ourselves, you know, you fucking American Canadians are going to come over here and make us train our day off. We're going to make it work our time beating your ass, you know? So they really pushed us on that. Um, and afterwards, uh, we got to go see their rooms and everything, which is pretty crazy. And I remember looking on the ground of <clears throat> the kid's room who just, just kicked the shit out of me for half an hour and threw me around. Uh, he had nothing but a thin, thin mat on the ground on a cement floor. But the sheets covering it were the exact same um, Ninja Turtle sheets that I had when I was a kid. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I remember just staring at the floor, seeing the exact same sheets. Exact. I mean, there's there no question in my mind, the exact same Ninja Turtle one. Um, and I have pictures at my parents' house where you actually see those in the background. Um, I just remember staring, blank face, uh, and as a 23-year-old man, like, holy shit, this is just insane. Um, and as soon as that trip was over, I went home and I threw my bed away. Um, and I went out and bought a thin, thin, thin futon, um, and laid it on the floor. And I was like, if this 20 year old kid who's owned by, owned by another human being, um, is kicking my ass on his day off while he's injured and not complaining about it and living that, my life's way too easy right now. Um, so I literally went home and threw my bed away and slept on a mat for probably the next year and a half of my life. Um, this is back in, I just thought, what's that? Back in the States. When you moved back to the States, you slept on the floor. Yeah. yeah. I came back home, uh, to Virginia Beach where I was living at the time and, uh, I threw my bed away and I slept on a mat in my house for a year and a half. Um, <laughs> and then I got to the point where I decided, okay, my back's starting to really, have problems, my legs are starting to really have problems. Um, and I decided, you know, to go back and get it back because it's going to be healthier for me because 
it definitely helped mentally toughen me up and put things in perspective, um, trying to live life more like a tie and trying to have a less privileged life and complaining less about it because there was somebody else out there that had it harder than me. Um, and that, it definitely made me uh, take a step up uh, personally and mentally. Um, and it was definitely an a interesting experience to do. Um, but then another token, you know, we here in America, I'll not say that we're smarter than anybody else, but we don't have such a simple mindset as everybody else. We kind of make things a little more in-depth, whereas people in the Eastern Bloc countries, um, they don't complain as much because they've had it a little tougher. Um, but, you know, they're like, oh, well, your back hurts because, you know, your back hurts. Kind of stop. Boom, plain and simple, you know, look at it like that. Whereas here in America, we have a little more resources, a little more money. You'd be like, you know what? Maybe I can buy a nicer mattress to help me have a better sleep at night, which is going to give me more rest, and that's going to make my back healthier so I can perform better at practice so I can go through the ranks faster. You follow what I'm saying? So I want to say we have, we're smarter. We just have more resources for solutions to not make things so simple. Yeah. Um, the um, the idea that because we are, uh, we have the resources, we can be a lot more efficient with our training, but then there's the idea of taking on that um, that hardened lifestyle, taking that, that um, embodying absolutely. into what we have in the modern-day setting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's what my attempt was that time in my life um, when I decided to sleep on the floor was my attempt to do that. As, you know, I was, you know, grown-ass dude living on his own, paying his own bills. Um, and, you know, I didn't have to sleep on the floor, but because somebody else was doing it and I, you know, I wanted to embody that culture, I decided I was going to try doing it as well. Um, and I think that's kind of one of those things that we have to continue to do um, to make sure we never have too much of a comfortable lifestyle. You know, look, you know, I hate to reference it, look what happened um, to Rocky in the movies. You know, he gets a comfortable lifestyle um, and he gets soft, right? That's why he had Rocky Three. He had to go back to the ghetto. He had to harden shit up again. You want to keep yourself comfortable, but never too comfortable, because when you get too comfortable, you get complacent. You get complacent, you get thought. Yeah, yeah. You lose that hunger, and that can be applied to pretty much anything, whether you're talking about fighting or business or relationships. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, if you're not striving for the next step, and you're comfortable where you're at, then the bottom line is you're never going to get to the next step. And if you're not advancing in your life, and you're only plateauing, then you're not doing anything with your life. And that, you know, that once again does translate to your relationships, your business, your personal life, your hobbies, whatever. Um, you have to stay hungry. If you're not hungry, then you're not going to eat. If you're not going to eat, then you die. That's how life works. Mm. That's definitely how it works in the in the confines of a cage or a ring, that's for sure. Um. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're going to... You're not hungry for it. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get put away. And when you get put away too many times, you don't have a career left. I remember uh, uh, talking to some pro guys when I was out in California. And um, some of them who had got comfortable really, really quick, they got a couple of contracts, um, got a couple of sponsors. And when they looked back on their career in hindsight, they they would say, I got comfortable too fast. And because I got so comfortable so fast, I wasn't hungry anymore. And then – all the up-and-coming guys who were still looking for those contracts and still starving to get out there and prove themselves, they were the ones that were the most dangerous to me because I had lost that feeling. I lost what it felt like to have to earn it again. 
Yeah, and that that's exactly why there are main event fighters, and then there's, you know, the uh, up-and-coming fighters. You know, the main event fighters are all, you know, always want people to pay to go watch. But you catch a lot of those main events, they end up being, um, you know, flops. People get pissed off to pay 50 bucks to see somebody get laid and preyed on in MMA, or they have two guys that have too much respect for each other. Um, and they end up just kind of poking and prodding during the whole fight and never really committing. Um, uh, you know, like Mayweather and Pacquiao. People were so disappointed with that fight because there was so much respect there that nobody wanted to get knocked out. You know, and I hate, I mean, there's so much respect, but there's also so much ego that nobody wants to get hurt. Um, whereas, you know, people in the main events, they're fighting to keep a contract, to keep another sponsor, to keep another six figures, and to keep, you know, their ball rolling, that guy on the fucking bottom of the card is dying for a shot just to get halfway up and the card in the middle of it, you know, before the fucking intermission or after the intermission. Um, he's hungry as shit. He's dying just to have three figures from a fight, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's where the better fights happen because those guys have to prove themselves. And it becomes a complacent thing. That's why no champion ever – and people always say, oh – no one's ever going to beat this champion. He's the best champion ever. Bull fucking shit. Somebody's going to beat him soon, whether he ages out or he just isn't hungry to pour anymore. It's the, it's the nature of the beast. It's one of the two. It's what gets all of us is complacency or age. It's a diminishing skill, and that's why everything's so time-sensitive. Um, but if you don't stay hungry for it, you know, there's going to be a guy who's starving, literally starving for it, and that's not even a figure of speech. Somebody out there is literally right, starving right now. Because they're going paycheck to paycheck on shitty fight cards, trying to make it. Mm-hmm. Who would you take in a fight? A starving guy who is dying to eat, or a guy who just ate Thanksgiving dinner? Right. Yeah. Well, I definitely would want to fight the guy who had just ate Thanksgiving dinner because exactly <laughs> out of food on the stomach and that turkey can make you really slow. Oh. Yeah, chase the itis, man. That's gonna, that's that's gonna be good for me. <laughs> For real. So let's talk about um, the MMA and Muay Thai influence. I know you have some very strong feelings towards uh, MMA culture, not necessarily the sport, but the culture of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that, like how um, how the respect aspect of of the, of the sport and and how it applies to, or how Muay Thai has either affected it or or could affect it. Um, once again, like earlier, I like to preface a lot of the things I say. The, the, here comes the disclaimer, everyone, so <laughs> pay attention. Here's the disclaimer. Yeah, don't pass this one up. I've got a lot of friends who are career professional MMA fighters. I've got a lot of buddies who just do MMA recreationally. i got a lot of buddies that are just absolutely obsessed with the sport. That being said, I fucking hate shitbag MMA frat boys. And that's a big part of the culture because the prime age and time for an MMA fighter to peak is between 20 and 26 years old right now. So you're catching a lot of stud athletes who want to be an alpha male, who have zero martial arts experience 
uh, but are extremely athletic and don't mind getting into a fight who are gaining literal overnight fame and becoming six-figure athletes, seven-figure athletes, and some of the time a lot of people are still going through their amateur careers, um, which it causes for a lot of ego and causes for um, a lot of bullshit to go with it. Um, and what catalysts that more than anything else is American fight culture. Americans like the shit-talking. Americans like uh, the drama, which is why Conor McGregor and people like Floyd Mayweather are so successful because they know how to get people hyped up like we're fifth grade in the schoolyard and everyone's yelling, fight, 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 or they're having a diss battle. Um, They're making fun of people and they're making other people laugh at uh, other athletes' misfortunes. Um, They're basically fucking bullying the way kids did in elementary school and making hundreds and thousands of millions of dollars off of it, and it's fucking horseshit. Um, now, on the other side of it, kudos to them for playing the system and making shit happen. You know, there's two sides to everything. I might not like it, but I got to respect it because you fucking play the game, dude. Um, but you're also making yourself look like a fucking ass bag doing it. Um, and, you know, there was a, and I don't mind voicing my opinion on certain things because I tend to always give disclaimers. Um, and people like hearing, you know, uh, a little more bold opinions if, um, I don't dare say so, but, (laughs) you know, um, there was just a very good article written, um, on the internet saying, uh, who, who wrote it, but it was saying why they believed kickboxing was not very popular in America. Now we are growing in strength in numbers right now but nowhere close to the amount of um, athletes, participants, or spectators as boxing and mixed martial arts, um, where mixed martial arts has become a very good platform for exposure of things um, like Muay Thai and, uh, and other kickboxing um, styles. Um, arrogance isn't within our culture, um, where it is within the boxing culture and it is within the uh, mixed martial art culture and the American fight culture. People like the arrogant statements, and they like the making fun of, and they like the drama and the theatrics that go into it. Whereas if you look overseas and see guys like Nikki Holtzkin and guys like Arthur Kishenko and Bukow and Masato and these legendary big names, these aren't arrogant fans. They're very soft-spoken, very quiet, very respectful, uh, thanking their opponents for everything, um, thanking their fans, thanking their mothers, um, and not being loud and boisterous because they're you know, their fighting does the, the speaking for them. Um, and that's where people don't realize that even though kickboxing as a whole, uh, whether it be uh, Muay Thai or, or kick, uh, American kickboxing, Dutch kickboxing or anything like that, isn't popular in America. Uh, in Japan and in other countries and Europe, you're fighting in, in 100,000-person stadiums. You're fighting in gigantic, gigantic superstar stadiums for people to see you. It's like soccer. Soccer is enormous all around the world, but it's so, so very unpopular here in America. Um, and one of the big reasons that people believe that to be is because even though it's a lot of violence, people don't like it because there's not a whole lot of theatrics behind it. There's not a whole lot of shit talking. There's not a whole lot of 
name calling, uh, and people buy so far into that, and, and it's just not within what we do. Well, so you feel that like the the inherent respect and discipline that comes with uh, Muay Thai training could could possibly influence mixed martial arts fighters if they choose to embrace more of the Muay Thai culture. If they chose to, absolutely. But I think one of the the big things that causes people to have a little more ego, a little more arrogance um, in the mixed martial art culture is the fact that you don't have to be good at everything. You just have to be really good at one thing. Um, And there's always much more of a fighter's chance or a puncher's chance in mixed martial arts because of the full-on gloves. Uh, The outsize really does make a difference and the threat of being taken down does make a difference in the way you can strike and perform and move and everything else. Um, so, you know, there can be, it's very easy to, to lose yourself into, uh, into arrogance when you're beating the shit out of guys who are professional athletes. And a lot of these young stuff guys are doing that's coming out of the woodworks out of nowhere who are just tougher than shit naturally um, and can take a hit. They're beating all these professional athletes very fast, and they have no experience. I mean, I don't blame anybody for getting a little bit arrogant about that. Um, but no one's doing that when it comes to Muay Thai because you have to be so good at Muay Thai to beat these guys in Muay Thai. You have to be good at one thing. That's Muay Thai. That's it. Whereas MMA, you can be good at any one of those things and have a lot of success because you have just that one thing on your back. Um, so it's, I, I feel it's much easier to go through the ranks of MMA uh, quickly, much much easier, and it's you know, much easier to go to the ranks quickly than MMA than it is for Muay Thai, where you really have to have time put in. You really have to have not just toughness, but skill set to be in one specific area to get through those ranks. You know, so you kind of know that from the get go when you're involved in Muay Thai that you got to have time put in. You got to get, you, know, you got to get your fights in. You got to get your time in. You're going to have to put, you know, those those years into it. Whereas in MMA. You go take a fight tomorrow and catch one lucky punch and really drop a guy. It's not that hard to do because his gloves are so small. Um, where I like to see more MMA fighters embody that Muay Thai spirit, where they know they, can, you know, there's always somebody that can beat them, and they're not going to be so uh, boisterous. Hell yeah, that would be awesome. But that person wouldn't be making as much money. So can I ask MMA guys to make less money because I want to see them shut up? I can't ask them to do that. Are they going to do it? Probably not. Or they have they have bills to pay. That's not what the um, the marketing machine wants to see. And you see a few people like like George St. Pierre, for example, who who comes across more as a martial artist who fights rather than just a fighter. But he's he's the exception rule. The majority of the people who are getting the attention are the Conor McGregor's and the Chael Sonnen's who who are come across kind of like pro wrestlers rather than professional fighters, right? Yeah, and it's entertaining. You know, you can't help but talk about it, which is why we're talking about it right now. Right. You know? Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's almost like a necessary evil, you know? You, you kind of, you like to hate the guys almost, um, which is why I get so riled up with it because, like, I'm, I get so caught up in these guys' bullshit, and then I'm mad that I'm caught up in their stupid bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, they're, they're, they're characters to build, and, you know, they really are playing the game with it. So. Yeah. In my opinion, you can really tell the difference between the guys. I think a guy like Chael Sonnen, he's a smart guy. He's not stupid at all. 
And he's one of the guys that really was athletic enough and intelligent enough and intellectual enough to play the system to get where he got fast. And that's why he's got – he had not just a successful fight career, but look what he's doing now. Like, he was successful before. He was, he was like a six-figure guy doing, like, real estate or some shit like that. But look at him now. He was smart enough and intellectual enough that when his athleticism wore off, that he's got a job for the next five, six, seven, eight, nine years commentating on the sport. So this guy made a living for himself, you know, a stud athlete, got up to the top ranks, running his mouth and using his brain and really picking juice off, and then was so good at doing that, got asked to stay around after he wasn't good enough to fight anymore to talk about the rest of the fighters. That guy made a, not just a fight career, but he made an entire career of fighting for himself after. Right. And as an entrepreneur, so, very important. As an entrepreneur, it's, it's very important to have that, that flexibility to know um, how to move lateral sometimes with your business. Like as a fighter, you can't fight forever, right? You have to know that there's a certain point where your, your career is going to be over because your body can only go for so long. But to be able to think ahead and go, okay, how can my skills transition over to something else, whether it be teaching or commenting or, or doing professional speaking, uh, what have you. you have to have that flexibility in order to be able to stay um, relevant. Yeah, unless you're successful enough in a fight career where you were making a healthy six figures per year that you were fighting or you were, make, you were a seven-figure fighter, um, once you get to that level, you can pretty much, if, you're, if you have the right to pull out of you, you're smart enough, put money into a machine and make it work. You know what I mean? If you, if you were like a seven-figure fighter, your name was big enough that you have enough money to make a school, and it should be able to run itself just based off how big you were. Roughly, if you're a seven-figure fighter, in my opinion. If not, you're just a dumbass fighter, and you can't do that afterwards. You should be doing anything but working McDonald's, man. Um, blowing all that money, man, you, you just get punched too much. Way too much. Way too much. Um, but if you're not a seven-figure fighter, which most of us aren't, you need to have a skill set. Um, a lot of people think just because you're a pro fighter, after that, you know, I got a couple fights in the UFC. I can open a school now. No. You'll have a school for about two, three years max before you start to fail. That's why gyms are the number one failing business in America right now, right up there with bars. Because um, there's so many professional fighters getting so much fame so quick, they get to a level where they don't like getting hit anymore, trying to open up a school based off their reputation, and their school fails just like their reputation did. Um, and that happens to a lot of guys, and it's really sad to see. But there are a lot of guys who are really smart about it and take the money they made and invest it into – I mean, look at Duke, even Duke Rufus after all these years putting together full-on DVD striking systems and full-on DVD, uh, you know, uh, curriculum they can sell, uh, online lessons and all these things, which you're seeing much more of the martial arts entrepreneur come out. Uh, was before there was, you know, a few uh, entrepreneurs in the martial arts business um, guys like Lloyd Irvin, you know, for a long time he was one of the only dudes making a whole lot of money because he had just this gigantic monopolizing system that he had spent so much time building where people saw what he's done and what he's continued. He's a very, very, very successful man. Um, and taking pieces of that and starting to grow more success with it. Um, I can't tell you how many, I, how many more trainers I've seen posting on social media about, um, having their, style kickboxing with their curriculum and their system and their certificate, which is almost like the next, I don't want, I, I, I want to say fad, uh, but it's actually the next evolutionary step in the independent trainer. Um, 
because we've lost in the martial arts culture uh, the diehard dedication uh, to where you came from. For a lot of, you know, people for a long time it was you had one trainer and only one trainer ever, and that was it. You know, if you were um, one fight, you know, came from one system, that was that was it. You were that system for the rest of your life. Whereas now, people are starting to get really, really um, uh, inventive in the ways that they're starting to train, having their own ideas and their own opinions, and saying, hey, well, I can do this. I like doing this because this is what I do. And they kind of go off on their own tapes doing it, and uh, you see a lot more guys. I saw uh, Kru Jong um, also has a, a striking system and a certificate system that he's doing. It's become a much more common thing. Uh, as you're seeing in the black community, and you don't see it as a negative thing to have these uh, these certifications and 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 people being like accredited as instructors. I know I personally don't. I, of course, I have the Muay Thai University, and I'm I'm very passionate about developing leaders within the Muay Thai community. You have um, the grindstone system, but there's some of some diehard traditional quote unquote traditional fighters who look at the um, promoting of instructors as being a watering down of of the system. Do you agree with that or disagree? I mean, it's, I mean it's, there's always it, there's always going to be that fact. You know what I mean? There's always going to be the watered down effect. And there's always going to be, um, you know, that caveat to it because it's never, it's never going to be as great with one person as it is with the next, you know? Because um, not everyone shares the same passion. Um, there's always going to be a need for instructors. There's always going to be a need for certifications because people like to see things like that. People like to feel accomplished with things like that. Um, and also along with that, a lot of people need things like that. Some people aren't as inventive um, with what they do and aren't as uh, – don't have the time to put in to make their own curriculum. They don't have the time to do these things that I really like because, you know, they're working 40 hours a week but teaching – on the side because it's what they love to do. So they don't have time to put an extra on top of their families to create their own Christmas and all these things. They just want something they can go to and share with everybody that they're familiar with, you know? Um, you know, and it's just like, you know, a certificate doesn't make the person, it doesn't make the instructor, um, it doesn't make the fighter, you know? Um, a lot of people, you know, I, I spent a very long time, personally myself, um, wanting to be a certified instructor and wanting to have all these titles and wanting to be recognized by anybody else. And I got to the point where um, I didn't even want to be called crew anymore, mm. you know? And and that's not um, – I don't mean that in a uh, disrespectful way to the community um, and to anybody other that uh, is called by the name or is used by the name, but there's become such a controversy. Uh, I, I don't want to say interest, but a controversy – over things like certificates in our community and titles in our community um, that I, I personally spent so long aspiring towards some of these things. Um, and it's gotten to a point where so many people have abused the terms and abused the names, and, and that's, you know, why we have people paying so much attention to it and why there is such a controversy, and it's because there are people out there that are um, – up using the names. There's a complex going up in, um, right down the street from me here in Northern Virginia um, uh, that my girlfriend wants to go to. And she said to me the other day, she was like, hey, is crew, the word crew just a tie thing? And I said, yeah, it, it is. Why do you ask? And she goes, oh, well, I have this pamphlet for this boxing place that's coming up 
you know, being built right down the street. And I saw it um, in the instructor's pamphlet that they were passing out. I was like, oh, cool. Well, let me look at it. And uh, not to judge a book by its cover too much, <laughs> but in, in this guy's profile, nothing about him said to me as an experienced Muay Thai practitioner that he was a genuine crew or teacher of Thai boxing. You know, he really just screamed, uh, give me your money, give me your money, give me your money. You know, and he looked like one of the guys that was abusing the term crew. And there's so many of those guys um, that are being successful doing that because they can't. You know, how many, how many uh, McDojos are there out there for Taekwondo and Karate and all these guys that are playing these black belt bullshit cards to make money? Um, and in the growing sport of mixed martial arts and American fight culture, Gyms are popping up, and it's a very, very attractive business to a lot of people. And it's a very easy way to make a lot of money, especially for taking advantage of people. And people are absolutely abusing the terms like uh, like crew that don't deserve to be using them at all. Um, so because it's been such a controversial thing, it really put a bad taste in my mouth because as a career martial artist, the fact that I didn't even want to be associated with a term that I had aspired to be called for so long, uh, it hurt personally. You know what I mean? That I was had such a bad taste in my mouth about it in the community. Um, but, you know, it, it comes down to a person-by-person basis, you know? If you're going to look at every person who uses a term like crew or ajan um, with a distaste in your mouth, then you're never going to like the, the terms anyways. You're never going to like the certifications at all, you know, because you already decided you, you have a bad taste in your mouth. Um you know, just because you have a title or something, it doesn't make you anything at all. There are certain guys out there that, I mean, look at Crew Phil Nurse, right? Uh, he's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's talk about modern Thai boxing culture right now. Um, if you're familiar with Phil Nurse, he's the trainer and owner of the Watch Gym in New York City. And I recently saw that he was promoted to Ajahn or Master by Ajahn Shai, one of the biggest uh, names in Muay Thai as far as the old school trainers go. Um, and I've been following his career. I mean, and who hasn't been following his career in the Muay Thai community? He's still a nurse, goddammit. Um, but he was only called crew fill nurse until recently. So that dude was teaching on a mastery level for how many years? Yeah, so I just, so just because Ajahn Chai says he's a master now, does that really mean just now he's at a mastery level? All respect due to Ajahn Chai and Phil Nurse. But I think he's been teaching on a mastery level for years. He's got world champions on a professional level for years. So what? May, so who? Why is it just now that he? It's okay for him to be called Ajahn because Master Chai said so. Well, I know that um, John T. Maxwell talks about the five levels of leadership. He uh, the, the the lowest level of leadership is title. So, person is a boss, for example, or a manager. If he's only leading someone because he has the title of manager, then it's the lowest form of it. And it's the same thing in our community. If a, if a person has the title of Ajahn and the title of crew, and that's the only reason why people are even paying any attention to him, then, yes, it's a form of leadership, but it's it's a lower form. People didn't follow Phil Nurse because he was crew this or Ajahn that. They followed him because he was – Because he was Phil Nurse who did great Muay Thai. Yeah, yeah. I thought when I was – 
a um, and this put the whole title thing in perspective. I struggled the same way with like the whole Achan and the crew thing. And um, when I was a lowly amateur fighter, the only only loss I ever had uh, in my my Muay Thai career was against Phil Nurse's guy, one of his students. So I was a beginner student fighting one of his seasoned guys when Phil Nurse was a seasoned coach back 20-some years ago. So the title doesn't mean as much as the reputation that he built for himself in his in his career and the things that he did with it. Absolutely. And, and you know, but that's also, once again, uh, the lack of education in American culture and martial arts society. You know, people are still stuck on Bruce Lee. So so stuck on the the traditional martial arts aspect where you know people to this fucking day ask me if I have a black belt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's no belts in, in 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 fighting, you know, and people still think that there is. People still think that you know you go through this uh, old school system uh, and proving grounds that you have to have years put in to be considered um, considered good to consider it at a certain level, um, and it's just not that way. It's not the way things work, and uh, because we have viewed martial arts in that Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris format for so long in American society, the next next natural step that comes along, something like Muay Thai, who are teaching it, will we automatically have to we have to associate what we know, and what we know is these old school ways. So they're expecting people to have these titles and 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 you know these lineages that just isn't necessary to have. Yeah. Well, titles are just like anything, like a tool, right? We, um, we'll talk about... Yeah, so I use it. Like, I, I pick up a hammer because I need to knock in a nail, right? Once I'm done with that, I put the hammer up, and then I go about doing my day. I don't walk around with a hammer in my hand telling everybody that I'm a hammer, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually very well said. <laughs> what they got was, 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 was crazy, so... This is the same thing with my title. I don't walk around, or you don't walk around on a day-to-day basis going to the grocery store introducing yourself as Crew Chase because they would ask you, they would think Crew was your first name, right? Um, People have actually asked me if Crew was my first name. Um, It's funny funny you say that. People have uh, been with me at the gym um, or have come into the gym where I've been working at, and a student will come up and address me and say, excuse me, Crew Chase, ask me a quick question. And they're like, oh, so your first name is Crew? I'm like, ah, well. No, you know, people call me that. It's my title here as instructor. Um, but people actually get very confused with that. So it's a very accurate statement that you're making. So, um, yeah, I could, we could talk all day. Um, we've got a couple minutes left in the show. What plug you've got coming up? You have a you're you're talking about entrepreneurship. You've got your a uh, show coming up. You got your own smoker coming up. Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple of years back, I started promoting shows, and it was something I really, really enjoyed doing. It was really, really hectic. Um, but it was actually really exciting and, and really gratifying. Uh, we've got a smoker event coming up at Disciple Martial, Martial Arts um, here in Northern Virginia um, on September 5th. Um, and for those of you that aren't familiar with smoker fights, smoker fights are just non-sanctioned events, um, practice events, if you will, uh, for novice fighters. Um, we're having <coughs> excuse me, a number of... Uh, Schools in Northern Virginia and the Norfolk area uh, coming up to compete uh, with us. Uh, we're open doors at six o'clock. Show starts at seven, um, and we're having all different kinds of fighting styles on it. A lot of times, people would just do um, practice Muay Thai fights, 
you know, to get prepared for larger events. Um, where I'm trying to start uh, doing is providing a couple of opportunities, not just to try uh, fighting in front of people, but fighting in different styles in front of people, where a lot of smoker fights will just be, um, you know, Muay Thai fights. I'm going to be hosting uh, Muay Thai fights, full rules Muay Thai fights. They have a full-size ring, a full-size cage at the school, um, and we're, we're hosting the fights at, so we're going to be doing some MMA fights. Um, we're also going to be doing cage Muay Thai fights, uh, you're finding that happening a lot more in the growing uh, mixed martial arts culture is that you're seeing a lot more Muay Thai fights happening inside of the cage. I personally fought um, in the ring for most of my career, but in the cage a number of times. Every time you step in there, it's a little bit different because you're not used to training in there. Um, the lack of the ropes and the balance of it and the ability to be stuck against the cage really does change the fight game. Um, so I'm trying to give fighters a little bit of exposure to that, actually fighting in a cage before they get cut off guard with it uh, by walking into an event and getting blindsided by it. Um, we're going to have a couple of glory rules fights, um, so a couple of different styles of kickboxing with it. And then we're really hoping to pull in and find somebody to do uh, CMT rules. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with CMT, that is uh, Cage Muay Thai, which is an actual fight event in Australia owned by uh, legendary kickboxer John Wayne Parr, where he does full rules Muay Thai fights, but inside of a cage with four-ounce MMA gloves on. So the fight game gets changed up a little bit, and we're trying to get a little bit of that uh, different fight culture over here and see if we want to try it out a little bit and kind of provide different opportunities for guys to fight a couple of different styles and see if they have a little bit of different skill set in different places. So it's going to be a really fun event. Uh, I'm excited to do it. Uh, we're going to try to keep doing it quarterly, you know, once every three months to keep fighters active and just keep fighters um in front of people. We don't want anybody getting stagnant. That's one of the problems in our community is that fighters will go so long in between fights. Um, they, you know, they get a lot of ring rust built up. They're you know not performing their highest capabilities. So we're trying to keep guys on a consistent competitive circuit um, so that when bigger fights come up, they don't have to pass over and be nervous that they haven't gotten in the ring for a while, haven't had that push been tested for a while so we can as a community all start to grow and take bigger and bigger fights and make people more more aware of what we're doing awesome and how would they get in touch with you if someone wanted to train with you or learn more about um, your Muay Thai system where can they get in touch with you um, you can always go on social media and look for Grindstone Muay Thai or my personal name Chase Walton um, you can check us out at DisciplemMMA.com um, any social media involving disciple mixed martial arts. Um, consistently posting videos up on YouTube um, for people to watch different uh, Muay Thai techniques and different pad holding patterns from the uh, grindstone Muay Thai system. Um, all of them posted up consistently on the internet. So there's always those avenues to go through. And uh, I'm going to be in the show notes. I'm going to put links to the uh, disciple and the grindstone page as well as. Uh, Samples of of crew chase holding mitts. If you ever seen them hold mitts? It's 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 complete artwork. It, it, it's artwork mixed with like the dynamic and the brutality of, of Muay Thai uh, kickboxing. You got to check it out. I've got some videos that I'll post up some YouTube links. That way you guys can get in touch with them. Um, Chase has been a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah. Love to have you back. There's tons to talk about, and um, wish you success coming up in your fight and. Keep pushing forward, keep representing uh, Muay Thai, and keep representing the warrior spirit. I do have one more question for you. What's that? Almost forgot. Uh, this is something that we ask every person on the show. 
And um, if there was three ways to embody the warrior mindset in the modern-day world that you'd like to pass on to anyone listening to the show, there are three ways, what would you say those three would be? Continuously strive to help other people. Any warrior, any true warrior you've seen um, pictures of from overseas or uh, from a third world country, uh, very rarely, if ever, will you ever see one of them firing a gun. Rather, you'll see them helping feed a child or or, or give water to somebody who needs it. Um, and that's part of the real warrior spirit isn't to necessarily fight but to help people. And sometimes we have to help people through violence. Um, so, so the first way is definitely to continu- continuously uh, try to help others around you. Um, number two is to not get complacent. Once you get complacent, you will drown. Complacency is the biggest killer um, in the active fight game um, and in the metaphorical fight game, if you will. Um, and then lastly, and most importantly, is in any format, continue to fight the good fight. So between those three things, um, I think that is the <clears throat> top-rated way to uh, embody the warrior spirit, um, whether it just be in a personal fight, in a competitive fight, in a physical fight, any way of format, um, if you are aspiring to, to take that path in your life. Those are the three most important. Awesome. Well, thank you for, much for your words of wisdom. Super proud of you, brother. Keep uh, pushing forward. This has been a great episode here with crew uh, Chase Walden, and I want to continue to remind everyone to keep searching for that warrior within, and we will talk to you all soon. Take care.